So Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 to 26. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out uh, out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with you, all of you for your pro- progress and joy in faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. Today we continue our new sermon series on Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And it's a letter about Jesus, and it's a letter about joy. Paul shows us in this letter, in very personal way, that life in Jesus Christ produces a supernatural joy. Even in unlikely places, like the church in Philippi. And the secret to this supernatural joy is found in actually an old Sunday school lesson. I think some of the most profound things and teachings are from good old classic Sunday school lessons. And the Sunday school lesson shows us that joy, as an acronym, stands for J, Jesus first, O, others second, and Y, yourself last. So Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. And throughout the letter to the Philippians, Paul will call us to emulate Jesus so that his identity and life will become our identity and life so that in learning to die to self and to live for Jesus, others may also find a supernatural joy in whatever we are going through. In today's passage, we are going to learn how Paul can find supernatural joy in his difficult circumstances as he quite amazingly diverts the tension away from his own hurts, rights and needs and is able to put Jesus first. So it's going to be a remarkable passage that we're going to work through. 
so incredible it almost feels like it's impossible for a human being, but we see Paul as a human exhibit a supernatural joy that puts Jesus first before himself. And so at the start of the letter, Paul rejoices in his partnership and fellowship with the Philippian church, even when the church is facing many troubles. In today's passage, he now tells us that, he, in today's passage, he would move from telling us about the church to now about his own situation. Reading from verse 12, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. For those who don't know who the Apostle Paul is, Paul is the greatest leader in the whole Christian movement. He's the greatest evangelist. He's the greatest church planter. He planted many churches. And to paint a picture, uh, he's also the greatest Bible teacher. He's actually written many parts of the New Testament. He would strategically travel to the major cities of the Roman Empire to reach these cities with the message of Jesus Christ so that the gospel could be spread across the empire and then to the known world. Most of all, Paul wanted to preach Jesus Christ in Rome because in Rome it was the largest city of its time and it was the nerve centre of power of this ancient superpower. And Paul did fulfill his desire to travel to Rome, but he did not plan to go to Rome as a prisoner in chains. So rather than being free to preach to the masses, Paul was confined to one small house, imprisoned as he waited his trial from Caesar. To paint a bit of a picture of how difficult his imprisonment was, we need to understand that it wasn't just a small prison. He was changed in prison to an individual guard of the Praetorian Guard. These guards were the most elite Roman guards in the entire empire. They were the personal bodyguards of Caesar, and they served him in his imperial palace. So think secret services. Paul was changed to the secret service of the Roman Empire. He was changed to these guards 24-7. He couldn't go into the bathroom with privacy. He couldn't even sleep in privacy. Paul was in a very demeaning, demoralizing, and dehumanizing circumstance as he waited his trial and potential execution. But even though Paul says he wants his reader to know that he's imprisoned, he doesn't share the details of his conditions. You can imagine, as a member of the Philippian church, concern for their previous pastor, Paul. They probably want to know how he's actually going. They want to know all the details. How is he being treated? How is he feeling? Is he getting his daily meals? What's the physical condition of the prison? But for Paul, such personal matters were not his priorities. We expect Paul to say that, you know, what has happened to him was a hindrance. This is stopping my opportunities. This is stopping my potential. This is stopping my capacities. But Paul absolutely surprises us by saying that his imprisonment is not a hindrance, but an advancement of the gospel. 
If you look at it, the situation one way, you would see that Paul is chained to the most hard-bitten, awful, mean-spirited Praetorian guards. But if you can look at it in another way, the Praetorian guard is chained to the most persuasive evangelist that has ever lived in the history of this world. And one by one, guard by guard, they are all converted. Can you believe it? I mean, Paul the church planter actually starts a congregation with guards in Caesar's palace. The gospel not only begins throughout the imperial guard, but others are encouraged to boldly proclaim the gospel all the more. Verse 14, and most of all, the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much bold to speak the word without fear. The chained inspired the unchained. When believers heard that Paul used his chains as an opportunity to express his faith in Christ, even to the palace guards, they were emboldened to proclaim Christ fearlessly, even when they had been intimidated to keep their mouths shut. What is so amazing is that Paul does not complain in his letter to the Philippian church to get personal sympathy from the Philippian church. He doesn't complain to get people to feel sorry for him. We don't read a word of that. Instead of complaining, he turns his posture, his attention, his focus to the confidence in God, a confidence in God who can spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to inspire the Philippian church to be emboldened, to proclaim the good news fearlessly. How might you turn from complaining to confidence? How might you see things one way and see things another way with confidence in God? Do you complain a lot because all the things and the people you see, you see are obstacles, you see as hindrances? The way you can turn your complaints into confidence is to see that your obstacles and challenges, not from just a human perspective, but from a divine perspective. God is powerful and sovereign over all kinds of obstacles and challenges. And do you know what the interesting thing is about complaining? This is what I find fascinating. Complaining easily builds community. If you want to build a community quick, start complaining. Complaining is like a universal currency in our world. Almost without fail, complaining gives a point of connection for people. Look, if you're a sports fan, you see how sports fans who don't know each other in a pub, they unite over as soon as mistakes are made by referees. Mothers bond together over the anger towards those people who keep buying up the formula milk on the Inner West Mums Facebook group. Employees, they rally together. They take on strikes over how terrible the toilet paper is. No, we are not going to work. This thing feels like baking paper. There seems to be nothing we won't complain about, and there seems to be no one who won't join us when we do. Complaining is the easiest way to build a community. And how much more does complaining build community in churches? 
Because with churches, there just seems to be so many obstacles towards the seemingly impossible task of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ in our city, in our time, and in our history. In our city, in our time, in our history, there seems to be so many obstacles whereby so many Christians complain about. Honestly, ask yourself, in your expressed desire to be open, authentic and real in community groups, honestly, is it just a cover-up to give yourself license to complain together? Has it become a fellowship of complaints rather than a fellowship of confidence? Paul encourages us that we are not to be a community of complainers, but to be a community of confidence because God has brought the gospel to the very center of power of the Roman Empire. Caesar's own household, a church was planted and it's guarded by heavy guards. It's almost impenetrable to get to Caesar, yet God is able to bring the gospel to the place where it's surrounded by the secret services. If God can plant a church with Paul in chains, in the Roman imperial palace, where Caesar is almost untouchable, yet God can touch people with the gospel. If God can do that, how much more can God save people in our city, in our culture, in our time, whether we call it post-Christian or not, how much more through our church, in our time, in our city, can God save people? Because God, through Jesus, has saved people. God, through Jesus, can save people. And God, through Jesus, will save people no matter what obstacle or difficulty that we are facing. It takes one complainer to raise a choir of complainers. But it can just take one person who chooses to have confidence in God to raise a congregation that is confident and emboldened to dare all the more to share the good news without fear to the people in our city. It took one person to inspire the Philippian church to be fearless. It will take just one person here at Chapel Hill to inspire us as a whole congregation to take on our city. One person to raise a fearless church family. Be that one person that chooses confidence over complaint. Be that one person in your community group. Be that one person at Chapel Hill. And we can take on our city without fear because God has saved, God can save, and God will save no matter what obstacle or difficulty. Paul was in a difficult situation not only for being in prison, but he was also in conflict with leaders in the church. That's heartbreaking. And Paul continues, verse 15, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. We can assume that when a good and strong leader like Paul is removed from the scene, others 
other leaders with selfish ambition will seek to take his place. The leadership void with Paul's absence will begin to be filled up with warring factions jockeying for influence and power. Those preaching Christ out of selfish ambition are envious of Paul and they seek to stir up trouble for Paul. The word translated for trouble is actually more like distress. These envious leaders in the church are, physically, are not physically assaulting Paul because they can't physically reach Paul. They are assaulting Paul with their words. They slander his character, discredit his motives in order for other members of the church to follow them instead of Paul. I'm guessing they would say things like, how can Paul be a good leader? Look at him, he's in prison. He must be doing something dodgy. And it is in these attacking words that inflict slander, shame upon his reputation and character with intent to cause emotional distress and anguish for Paul. That is so awful. And I'm sure you would all agree, you can break and destroy someone when words are used in this way. If you've been in a personal conflict, and perhaps some of you have experienced that in a church, I really feel for you. I'm glad that you're here today. I hope you might find a word of comfort. And I just want to acknowledge that words can break and destroy someone when words are used in this way. But I can't help but see the remarkable response that Paul has. How does Paul respond in his emotional distress? He says this in verse 18, which I really cannot believe. He says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motive or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul incredibly, incredibly is able to say that his own emotional distress, his own interpersonal conflict is of little or no importance. Paul so incredibly puts Jesus before himself and is ready and willing to trade the things that we hold as sacred to us, namely our sense of justice and security. He is willing to trade up his own personal rights for justice and security for the greater cause of Christ. It's mind-blowing. I keep reading these verses over and over, and I just, it's incredible. There's, it's unparalleled that in his interpersonal conflict, in his emotional distress, he's able to shift his gaze away from himself and fix his gaze on Jesus and the ability that God can spread the gospel quite remarkably, so that he can genuinely rejoice. He can genuinely find joy in the middle of conflict. The only appropriate personal application is just to be inspired by Paul's response. I can't think of a personal example. I can't think of an illustration anywhere. This is quite unique. And the only response and application is just to be inspired by his response that he can spark joy in Christ 
by choosing not to look inward, but to look upward at God's power and sovereignty in the spread of the gospel for the salvation of others. The only thing that we can draw upon is that we can just trust and know that even in interpersonal conflict, that is not an obstacle for God. And so for us as a church, it gives us great encouragement and comfort. In so many ways, it gives me, myself, great personal encouragement and comfort to know that in the midst of interpersonal conflict, God continues to use us to spread the gospel. God continues to bring people through the doors of Chapel Hill. God continues to help people come to know him and that and for that, in the midst of interpersonal conflict, we can genuinely rejoice as we deal with conflict as a church family. One commentator in Philippians wrote, as long as the focus is kept on Christ, there will be unity in the church. As soon as the focus shifts to interpersonal competition and conflict, unity will be destroyed. Yes, we do need to deal with and resolve conflict between people within the church. But even through this painful process of resolving conflict, we can find genuine joy when we can put conflict and personal gain into the greater perspective of God's greater plan and his greater power to use us to spread the gospel and see people come into his kingdom. That is amazing. We can genuinely rejoice as we walk through the pains of conflict. At this point, you go, how on earth can Paul respond in this way? How can Paul's joy in Christ be so resilient? How is it that he can put Jesus first before himself when he has every right to focus and pursue his own justice and purity? He has every right. The answer lies in the deep certainty and confidence in God's sovereign purpose for his life. Verse 19. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Job in the Old Testament used the same expression. Job 13, 16 says, this will turn out for my deliverance. And so Paul echoes the hope of Job of the Old Testament that God will look after him and bring about his deliverance. Paul knows that he will soon be released from imprisonment one way or the other, either by dismissal of the trial or by death. Paul believes that his life is held in the hands of the sovereign God. It is this belief and trust in God's overruling authority and, and plan that gives Paul this resilient joy in his difficult circumstances. And more and more I come to think about the difference between happiness and joy. I think the connection between the differences between happiness and joy is that joy is rooted in assurance. Which is why I love Rick Warren's definition of joy. Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is to be all right and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. I think I'm starting to really understand what real joy is. It's the wellspring, it's the fruit, it's the thing that comes out of this peaceful assurance that God has got my back. 
Joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life, the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right, and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. It is Paul's deep assurance that God will deliver him sooner or in the end with death. And that enables him to joyfully take risks for Jesus Christ day by day. Verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul wants his church to know that he is ready to die for his faith in Jesus Christ. He affirms that even if his life is taken, the loss will result in a gain, the greater gain of being ushered into the immediate presence of Jesus Christ. This certainty regarding his own death actually liberates him to live fearlessly and completely for Jesus. Because Paul knows that the worst thing in life, which is death, is going to be the best thing in his life, to be with Jesus forever. And with that trust, he can resolve to live his life fully, wholly for Christ. Every moment of every day, he can live for Christ. He's liberated from the fear of death and any other smaller fears. What that means is that the Christian life is not about being comfortable. The Christian life is about Christ and making him known to others. And we can even risk our lives for it. It is only when you know that death will usher you into the very presence of God that you can live a fearless faith. And we can joyfully risk it all for Jesus, for him to be known even with our own lives because what's the worst thing that can happen to us? Well, we get to meet Jesus sooner. And if you're here today and you are riddled with fears, and particularly the fear of death, then I want to encourage you to turn to Christ. Confess your sins, seek his forgiveness, commit your life to him and you will have the assurance that your life will be a life of love with God forever. And if you've already surrendered your life to Christ, I want to encourage you to live your life in a way that you see death as gain. When you live your life for yourself, building yourself your own little kingdom, then death will be a loss to that kingdom. But if you live your life for Jesus, then death will be gain and your labour in God's kingdom will never be in vain because his kingdom will last forever. This must be the heart cry for all of us. To live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Jesus Christ is the only one for whom life is worth living. And only in Jesus Christ can we ever find everlasting joy. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, may our heart cry be to live is Christ and to die is gain with a joyful assurance that you have conquered death 
that you have conquered sin, that you have conquered Satan, so that no matter what difficulty that we are facing in our own personal lives, no matter what conflict, what obstacle, what hindrance, we can find joy because nothing will stop the spread of your gospel. And you will deliver us sooner, if not definitely, at the end. And for that, we praise you and we give our lives to you, to your honour, to your glory. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.